Thank you. God bless you. I told the church earlier that I have a thorn in my flesh, and I prayed three times that God would remove it. But Time Change Sunday just keeps coming. Twice a year. Matthew chapter 23 is where we are. We're, we're going to look at verse 15 in particular this morning. So, Father, this morning we're asking uh, just for your voice, for you to speak. Lord, as we study your word, we really do believe it to be inspired of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would continue to settle in this room. We've already encountered you this morning. Lord, we ask that you would apply this word to our hearts, change us, transform us. Our hands are open. Lord, we do want to see this community really come to have a fresh encounter with you. And this is about us saying, Lord, use us. We love you. We bless you. We thank you, Lord. It's in the holy name of Jesus we pray. Everybody say amen. 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 Well, as we continue to move in the seven woes of Matthew chapter 23, remember again that this is Jesus' strongest rebuke in his ministry. Um, I want to give you just a little bit of cultural context um, to help us understand what's happening here. And so from the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, which is a 5th century document, um, we have 5th century, but earlier, um, we learn of two um, Jewish rabbis that were a generation before Jesus Um, But they were alive and teaching during the reign of Herod. Remember Herod um, attempting to have Jesus murdered. These two men would have been alive and at play in that period. Um, Their names are are Hillel and Shammai. They're two Jewish teachers. Um, Hillel and Shammai were were friendly with one another. But there's this tradition in Judaism sometimes that there are two opposing voices who, in theory, kind of balance each other out. Um, but they, So they're friendly with one another. They eat with one another, but they disagree on everything. They spend their lives debating how Judaism is intended to be lived out. Now, the, the way that it's taught is that... Um, Hillel was a, was a really poor man. He was a builder. They both kind of did construction stuff. Hillel was a really poor man. And tradition says that um, to get into here, the Torah taught in this time period, you had to pay like a small fee and the fee would help cover the expenses of uh, the building, whatever. And, but Hillel didn't have the money to pay the fee. And so tradition says he would sit on the roof and listen to the rabbis teach because he loved Torah so much. And at some point he passes out and falls and they have to run out and wake him up. And eventually they get rid of the fee altogether because the poor man Hillel was so hungry to learn or in Torah, but didn't have the money. Um, so Hillel is presented much more as this, um, he's, he's zealous, he's passionate for the word, but he's a little more laid back and lax than Shammai. Shammai is very nervous about Gentile influence uh, into Judaism. So I think the Jews in this period are under Roman Empire. Many at this point are speaking Greek. They've been Hellenized. They've lost the Jewish language. Um, Shammai really believes that the more outside influence the Jewish people have, the more watered down Judaism it will become and eventually they'll be judged. And so Shammai is presented as very much more rigid. Um, he's stiff. And so here are a few of the debates they've had um, throughout history that the Talmud tells us that they had in the day to kind of give you an idea for who they were. Um, Shammai taught that divorce was only appropriate in the case of adultery. And so Jesus would agree with that. You should only um, divorce uh, if adultery is involved. Otherwise, marriage is a permanent covenant. Um, Hillel said that if your wife burns your food, cut her off. Let her go. 
Um, Shammai said that if your wife asks you if she is beautiful and she is not beautiful, you are required to tell her the truth. Hillel said, white lies are okay sometimes. Um, I'm with Hillel on that one, fellas. You just keep, don't let that card show. Um, I think they're just a generation or so out from the Maccabean revolt. And so the tradition of Hanukkah is in play already. And so they debated um, which way you would light the candles. And Hillel said you should write them left to right. And Shammai said right to left. And so there are, there are continuous debates like this. Now, there's a really common story that will paint a little light for our um, text today, our passage. Really common story that even today Jewish children are taught. And the story goes like this. Um, a Gentile came to Shammai. And he stood on one foot and he said, while I stand on one foot, I want you to teach me all of Torah. Now, again, Shammai doesn't, he's not a big fan of Gentile influence in Judaism. So he does um, what he feels appropriate and he picks up a two by four, essentially a two by four. And he smacks the man on the head until he leaves. He just beats him off because Shammai ain't about the Gentiles coming around. Now, the same guy goes to Hillel, the other leading teacher. He stands on one foot and he says, teach me all of the law as I stand here on one foot. And Hillel says this essentially. Do not act out in hatred towards your brother or towards your neighbor. Go and learn the rest. So essentially what Hillel said was, all of the law can be fulfilled if you simply don't hate. So there's really interesting scholarly debate in the fact that Jesus may be interacting with Hillel when Jesus says, all of the law is fulfilled in this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's a stark contrast between not hating your neighbor and actively loving your neighbor. I, we just moved recently, so I haven't even met all my neighbors yet. I don't hate anybody. I don't even know you. And so, but, but, but love is an active expression of you're at the hospital. I'm going to come visit you. You're in financial despair. I'm here to pray for you, encourage you, help you financially if I can. Love says you're in trouble. I'm going to spend my time, money, and energy to help you. Love is intentional. Hatred is just don't hate is a very laid back, open-handed. And so it may be that Jesus is actually interacting with Hillel a bit when he says, no, the law is fulfilled and intentional, selfless love being expressed to neighbor. Either way, the point is that Hillel and Shammai, they both built entire schools of thought. Um, they uh, had entire movements produced from their temperaments, their personality, which obviously played into the two. They both had different temperaments. Shammai, a much more rigid man by nature. Um, and so Shammai's school, his, the generations of rabbi scholars, Jews that came after him, were influenced by his temperament, by his values, um, by the things that he emphasized and taught. He produced an entire movement, and Hillel did the same. He produced uh, an entire movement to come from his values, temperament, um, his emphasis on his teaching. They were equally zealous equally zealous. Hillel was just as zealous as rigid Shammai for the law and the teaching. They were equally as zealous, but what they made and produced was radically different based on their unique values. Now, what we're going to find this morning is Jesus saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you travel land and sea to make a single proselyte, but when you make him, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. They're both equally zealous, but the way that you make, what you produce, matters. History says 
that when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees in his day, he was most likely rebuking the school of Shammai because they were the larger influence. And so you feel the kind of stiffness and rigidness in Jesus's rebuke and say they really were leading the day. Most Pharisees would have been of the school of Shammai at this time. Shammai was very friendly with the zealots. And the zealots were Jews who believed that they should overthrow Rome through violent rebellion. And so, but again, Shammai is not a fan of Roman and Greek influence. And so they're teaching we should overthrow Rome through violent rebellion. Now, what happens is um, that re- the Jews do try to rebel um, later in history, and um, they're essentially dominated. And so um, after the temple's destroyed, they've been crushed, um, the Jews give up on Shammai. And then for the rest of history, the school of Hillel really leads because they don't want to try to, they're not into the fighting, rebelling thing anymore. Um, so we know that historically Jesus is probably confronting that, that sect, at least emphasizing that sect's teaching. So let's read Matthew chapter 23, and we want to get into um, the rebuke here um, and do our best to really understand what Jesus is emphasizing. Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Quick recap, really quick, just to kind of catch you up if you're a visitor um, on where we are in this series. Matthew chapter 22 is this continual debate that Jesus is having with the Pharisees, essentially. They're trying to catch him up and tangle him in his words. They come with Roman government officials and say, look, should we pay taxes or not? You're truthful, you'll tell us. This is where Jesus takes a coin and says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to um, the Lord the things are the Lord. And you remember that when Jesus stands before Pilate, one of the accusations was that he taught the people not to uh, pay taxes taxes. So they're trying to catch Jesus up in his words, ultimately to have him murdered and done away with. And so Jesus has just been persecuted on multiple occasions by the Pharisees. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus releases this long list of woes towards the Pharisees. We talked last week about the word woe and that the word woe is a pronunciation of coming judgment. Ultimately, chapter 23 ends with these words to the Pharisees, your house will soon become desolate. The house of the Pharisees would have been the temple, which would be destroyed in the year AD 70. And so Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple in their day. Now, Matthew chapter 24 is all a a prediction, a prophecy of coming judgment. So 22, he's interrogated. He's persecuted by Pharisees. 23, he rebukes them. 24, he pronounces future judgment. You travel across the sea and land. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You you travel across sea and land. Now, most interpret this to not be a literal expression, but, but a phrase like, you leave no stone unturned to make a single proselyte. There's a bit of confusion in, in the scholastic world about this text because 
Again, most Jews in this day were of the school of Shammai, and they weren't really into Gentiles. And so it's not as though the Jewish community in the day of Jesus had this missional movement and wanted the nations to come and know Yahweh. It's a false parallel to think of Judaism as caring about um, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity coming to know the Lord. That was very much a uniquely Christian idea. The Christians went to the Samaritans and were rebuked for it. When Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman, he's persecuted, uh, or, or, or essentially there's, there's quite a bit of pushback for that idea. And so it's not as though the, the Pharisaical Judaism of the day was saying, like Christians say today, red, yellow, black, and white, come on, Jesus is for you, you are welcome in the gospel. It's not what was happening. Most in the school of Shammai would be willing to um, engage in some kind of mission to win other Jews to their sect of Judaism. There were some in the school of Hillel who were, again, more open to Gentile proselytes, but it still wasn't a real emphasis. It was more of, um, you could you could come if you would receive circumcision, submit yourself to all of the law, and, um, and abandon your ethnic heritage, essentially. And so uh, it's not as though Jesus is saying, woe to you, you're so missional in your activity. What he's, really re- what he's really saying is, woe to you, you're very zealous to win people to your sect. You are very, very energetic and passionate. You spend your money, your time, and your energy. The Talmud, again, speaks of some Jewish merchants who would travel for work. And while they were traveling for work, they may teach some Gentiles, but mostly they would try to win other Jews to this sect of uh, Pharisaical thought. And so Jesus is very much saying, you are energetic. You are passionate. You're zealous. You are zealous. Is he rebuking their zeal? I don't think so. I don't think the point of this rebuke is, woe to you for your zealous. I think religious zeal is a beautiful thing when the zeal is expressed appropriately. I think there are, hear me say this, there are heretics, groups of false religious Fanatics at times, there are those zealots for Islam who are zealous to bring their movement into the forefront. And at times, Christians sit back on our hands and we are being outzealed by people who are zealous for a false movement. I think we have the true gospel that liberates and brings freedom, that offers grace, that says to the sinner, come to Jesus. What you did yesterday bears no weight. Your ethnicity, your socioeconomic class, your background, your orphan, your sexual past, it means nothing. You can have forgiveness and liberty and joy and life today in the good news of Christ Jesus. I think we have that message, but we get outrun by heretics. I think that people are more zealous for their false religion at times than we are zealous for the true gospel of Jesus. And I think it's time for us to roll up our sleeves a bit and lean in. I don't think Jesus is saying you're too zealous. I think he's saying you have an appropriate zeal, but it's expressed in in an inappropriate way. And so we, as a congregation, as a people, we want to be zealous about seeing this community come to know Jesus. We want to expend our passion and our energy and our time into really moving this region into an encounter with the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. 
But if that zeal is not properly expressed, we may find ourselves standing with the Pharisees, using energy only to make people hellish. So Jesus says, you travel across land and sea. You, you do everything you can to make a proselyte, a convert. But when you make a convert, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourself. It's been on said, it's said many, on many occasions, the more converted, the more perverted. The more someone is entrenched in your culture and in your teaching, the more they are bound in religiosity and pride and arrogance. Some would say that twice a child of hell is an expression and sense saying they are bound for hell, even twice as, they're twice as likely to go to hell as you. I'm not sure that that is the full expression of what's happening here. I think that we are called to win the nations, bring them into an encounter with the power of the Spirit at the proclamation of the cross of Christ, and to, in discipleship, lead people to reflect the kingdom of heaven. If we are not intentionally leading people to carry the values of heaven, humility, selflessness, the values of of heaven, uh, servant-heartedness, If we're not intentional to instill heaven-like values, we will, in our flesh, naturally instill religious pride. And I think Jesus calls that hellish. I think Jesus says, pride reflects hell. It does not reflect heaven. So I think there's a sense in what Jesus is saying is, when you disciple, when you teach, when you pass on your teaching and your faith to the people that you've expended all this energy to get in your room, all you do is you teach them to express the values of hell. And this week, what I want you to notice in this woe, Jesus is hinting at this truth. Teaching is not only what we do from a platform in a lecture setting. We teach day in and day out through the culture we allow in our homes, through the way we speak to our spouses, through the things we read and listen to. We teach by the things we give our money to. We, we teach. So in the, in the Jewish concept of teaching, we've talked about this before, what we're doing today is a very Greek idea of teaching because I'm standing up elevated so everyone can see me. You're listening to essentially a lecture There's not much interaction. It's just an onslaught of information towards people. There's nothing wrong with that. The church has always preached in this fashion. Um, But the Jewish idea of teaching, if you were under a rabbi, it wasn't that you went to the rabbi's seminars. It was that you lived day in and day out with that rabbi. You dressed like the rabbi. You taught like the rabbi. You often learned the trade of the man that you were studying under. And so teaching was not just this exchange of intellectual information. It was a passing on of an entire lifestyle. Um, and so when we talk about teaching, we need to understand that what Jesus is re- essentially saying here, last week I think it's very clear that Jesus rebuked the doctrine of the Pharisees. This week he's not necessarily rebuking their doctrine. He's rebuking their external expression of their faith. The way that they live. We want to be aware of this truth that what we teach verbally must be expressed in our daily living. If 
We say we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform a life, yet we live hellish in pride and gossip and slander, hypercritical. We live in such a way that reflects the values of the world. All we're doing is undercutting the doctrine that we say we believe. And your children see right through it. My children will see right through it. And so, for instance, you know, the, the parent who says to their children, you tear their butt up if they ever use profanity, but everybody knows you cuss like a sailor. You are not instilling a value in your child that says the words that come out of your mouth need to be God-honoring. Because all you're doing is saying, when you're an adult, you can talk however you want to talk. To. You, you're talking out of two sides of your mouth. And churches can do this. And, and what we can do is become so rigid in our doctrine. And, and to be frank, the core doctrine surrounding the gospel, we should be rigid about, right? We want to be rigid about the blood of Jesus. We want to be rigid about the Trinity. So it's rigid doctrinally is not always a bad thing if your doctrine is biblical. We want to be biblical and stick to our doctrine. But if we don't live in such a way that validates and brings strength to the fact that we actually believe our doctrine, we're talking out of two sides of our mouths. And what we're doing is saying, you should come to our church because we're better and we know the right things. But then we're living like hell and we're teaching those around us to carry on our hellishness. William Gunrall, who's a classic Puritan, who you should read at some point in your life, says this. The sins of teachers are the teachers of sins. In other words, I can teach you clear biblical doctrine. But if I embrace and live out a sinful lifestyle, if I live sexually immoral and everybody knows it, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching you that that's okay through my life. The sins of the teachers become the teachers of sins. So if we are zealous to win this community to the gospel, then we must equally be zealous to express and live the gospel in a faithful and sincere way here in this room amongst one another. If our gospel is a gospel of grace, then yesterday's mistakes bear no weight on tomorrow's eternity. If it's a gospel of grace that says, you messed up, we all messed up, come and receive forgiveness in Christ Jesus today, then the question always lies, then why then does our living matter? Why does it matter how we live, Caleb, if you're continually telling us that we should be people who present a gospel of grace? One, because what we teach is not merely that your sins can be forgiven, but that your life can be transformed by the power of the Holy Ghost. What we teach is that the moment you say yes to Jesus, you can be born again. You can have a new life in your spirit. Any man in Christ is a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. What we believe is not merely that your sins are forgiven, but your sins are forgiven and you are transformed, reborn by the power of the Holy Ghost. If we believe that the power of the Holy Ghost infuses the believer and produces a new life, yet we continually live lives that look like our old self, we talk to one another in demeaning ways, we spend our money in selfish ways, we gossip and slander. If we're living like the old self, yet we're telling our culture, you can be born again, all we're really saying is we don't believe our own teaching. We've got to live as if we have actually encountered the power of the Holy Spirit. And that living will put on display healthy marriages for our culture. Healthy lifestyles. 
healthy families. And then our culture will say, oh, there must be power to your message. If you continually deny the power of the Spirit to lead you into holiness, you speak out of those, both sides of your mouth. Why does our living matter? Because, wor- because holiness is worship. And when Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. It was not a manipulative phrase saying, you better obey me if you... If you it, it was very much saying that the natural expression of love for Jesus is obedience. Why does our living matter? Because we call him Lord, King. We don't just call him our fire escape. He's the king of our lives. We have to be sincere and genuine in the way that we live and honor the lordship of Jesus. Why does our living matter? Because we do not belong to this world. We are saying to people, you can become a citizen of heaven today. We are saying to people, this world is not our homes. We're pilgrims, passerbys. We are saying to people, there is a last day coming when this world will be wrapped up in the fire of God and the new heaven and new earth will be born. And we belong to that new day. We are new creatures in Christ, born for the new heavens and new earth. And so we're saying we're citizens of heaven. We need to live like it. Not like we are citizens of common modern culture why does our living matter because consistency matters and again if we are going to be zealous to win our city as we preach the gospel we must be equally as zealous to have a sincere culture that really lives the gospel otherwise we'll only win people to our church and teach them our sins if our prayer meetings turn into, which they're not at all now. Don't hear me saying that. Our prayer meetings are great. If you're not in a prayer meeting, by the way, let me go ahead and tell you what time they are. Seven o'clock on Saturdays. Wednesday. <laughs> um, you need to get in prayer meetings. Um, but if our prayer meetings ever become a house, a, a circle of gossip, which happens in churches, where you sit around and talk about everyone's problems and mistakes, and it's really about exposing people, because for some reason, I don't know why, we, we like to gossip. Like something in our flesh Loves, loves a good gossip. Um, and we all need to acknowledge that. And we need to actively resist it. But if that's what happens in our prayer meetings, we start winning people. We think we're winning them to the gospel. We think we're discipling them. They come and they want to learn to pray. They're not going to learn to pray. They're going to learn to gossip. You may have somebody who's not even a gossip and the church teaches them to be a gossip. We've got we've to think those things through. And so, with all that being said... We talked last week about wanting our doctrine to be right. This week, we need to talk about wanting our culture to be right. What we teach people through the way that we live. In order to be serious about wanting us to have a, a, a healthy culture, we first need to be able to define what kind of culture we're trying to create. I think there's a couple things that we've committed ourselves to. One, we want to be a people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and that means that we want to walk with Him. And I don't know if you know this, but his name is Holy Spirit for a reason. Because he's a person of holiness. Two, we've said we want to be biblical. No matter which direction the culture goes in, we're willing to stand our ground and have stones thrown at us. And by God, the stones are coming. um, In order to be biblical. Three, we have continually said that we want to express the nature of Christ through selflessness. 
We want to be selfless individuals. We, want to don't, we don't just want to say to our culture, to our church family, what can you do for me? But we want to say, who's, who's struggling right now? Who can we bless right now? Who can we uh, show up? Who needs help around the house? We want to be people who express selflessness. We want to be people who are serious about humility. Our kind of tagline as a church is for his glory. We want to be serious about that. What we're doing here is not about any man or in any individual. I pick on the worship team for a minute. This platform is not a platform um, to express your great gifts. And we, again, are so blessed um, in that department. We don't have anybody trying to show off. Um, but we need to be serious about not allowing that to take place here. Because God says he resists the proud and the humble he exalts. And so much of what Jesus is doing in his teaching is he's teaching the culture of heaven. And he says um, to the disciples at the beginning of this chapter, the, the Gentiles, they lord over one another. They try to set themselves up as, uh, as the leader, as the king. He says, not so among you. The greatest among you will be the servant of all. The greatest is going to be the servant. What is Jesus doing? He's defining culture. He's defining what the culture of the church should be. Servant-hearted. We're not ones who scratch and call for leadership because we want to be seen. We're selfless and servant-hearted. So if we can roughly define what kind of culture we are trying to create, sincere, spirit-filled, Bible-believing, selfless, selfless, humble people, if that's roughly the culture we are trying to create, we then have to defend it. And so you walk into a prayer meeting and gossip is taking place. We have to be willing to address steer conversation, have private conversations where we say to people, that's not who we are. That's not what we're trying to do. Again, if we're not willing to define and defend our culture, we can teach good doctrine until until we're stinking blue in the face. But if we allow our culture to be fleshy within the church, we're going to undercut our mission. Paul in Galatians tells a story of... um, he and Peter are at the church of Galatia. Or no, that's, that's not true. He tells us the story of Galatians. Um, I think they're at the church of Ephesus off the top of my head. They're at a Gentile church, and um, they are having a meal with a primarily Gentile congregation. So everyone's sitting down and having a meal together. But that's really not appropriate for Jews to do in the day. They, they wouldn't have a meal with a Gentile. But in the church, the wall of hostility is torn down, so Jew and Gentile alike share communion. Um, and so Paul and Peter are having a meal with the Gentiles. And, um, but then some Jews show up from Jerusalem. They've just traveled into town. And when they show up, Peter gets up and kind of tucks his tail and scurries because he doesn't want the Jews to see him eating with the Gentiles. Paul stands up and rebukes the apostle Peter in front of everybody. And what Paul is doing in this moment, he calls Peter weak. He calls him too care. He cares too much about people's opinions. And what Paul does in that moment is he defends the culture of the church. He was willing to address the hard topic and defend who they were going to be. And so for us, um, we, we've got to define who we're going to be, and then we've got to be willing to hold each other accountable to create an atmosphere within this church family that seriously expresses the culture of heaven. We're, we're not going to be backbiting. We're not going to be gossipy. We're going to do our best not to slander. We're going to carry out our convictions, but we're going to express them in, in truth and in grace. Um, those kind of things. If we're not serious, we can be zealous till we're 
blue in the face about winning this city, but if we are not equally as zealous about creating a culture that reflects heaven, we'll grab people and suck them into our culture of hell and train them to be religious. Still addicted to pornography and still, still filled with sin, but now with a suit and tie and using Christianese. And Jesus essentially says that's what the Pharisees do. So worship team, if you'll come, we'll get ready to close. Does that, does that make sense to everybody, what I'm saying? And so y'all hear me saying, I want us to be serious about this. There's some things in our, um, our value system. We are, we are working, last week we met with a, um, an organization that primarily deals with helping churches to better support um, the foster care system in their area. Helping churches to not only get families licensed to foster, but um, maybe you're older in the congregation and that's not a good season, but to, to show you ways that you can support in prayer, that you can support financially or with practical needs. And so in the fall, we're going to get ready to launch a ministry that's primarily focused on um, how we can support orphans in our community, people who are going through that season. Now, what I want to say to you is I have preached since I've stepped into this church against abortion. I am vehemently, vehemently, whatever that word is, against abortion. And for the most part, you have cheered me on. But now we're getting to the place where it's not enough to just say we are against abortion. We need to say it and believe it, and we need to support the orphan in our community. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you as the season starts to roll around or roll out in the fall, I'm going to ask some of you to consider rolling your sleeves up. And when we can't just say it, we've got to say it. And back it up with our lives. Um, roll our sleeves up. Again, that's not everybody necessarily taking a child in their home. But that may be you showing up and helping babysit for someone else who's taken on that burden. Um, and so we're going to do some things like that. And what we're doing is we're trying to intentionally create the kind of culture that we want to create. And then we're going to defend it. We're going to be people who value life, not just with our words, but with our actions. We're going to value family. We're going to continue to value marriage. And, and that, that matters. It really, really matters. That's the rebuke of Jesus today. You're zealous, but you express your zeal in an inappropriate way. We want to be zealous, more zealous than the heretics. We want to express it through a healthy, sincere, spirit-filled culture that loves the presence of the Holy Ghost and believes fully in the power of the gospel to cleanse us of our sins and to transform our lives, to set us free from addiction, depression, suicidal thoughts and tendencies. We want to believe in the power of the Spirit. Amen. You guys with me? If you would stand to your feet. I want you to remember Gunrall's words this morning. Altar team, if you guys want to go ahead and get in place. Remember Gunrall's words this morning. The sins of teachers are the teachers of sin. Jesus' rebuke again this morning is holy in the word make. What you make you have great zeal, but you make them children of hell. We want to ask the question and sincerely ponder, what are we making? What are we producing? What kind of movement do we want to leave here a hundred years later? So first, this morning, we just want to say again, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, there's no better time than today to get right with God. What the scripture teaches is that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So there's not a perfect person in the room. None of us would say God loves us because of what we've done. With that being said, nothing in your past matters. 
your sexual sin, your financial sin, your gossip, your slander, you stole, you lied, you cheated. Nothing matters concerning your eternal future today except for one thing. Will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord today? The only thing that is locking you out of the kingdom of heaven is your unwillingness to open up your hands and call Christ the Lord with faith and repentance to turn to him. And so this morning, as we get ready to move into altar ministry, we want to tell you that you can leave here today totally forgiven of your sins. All of, the, all of the guilt will be washed away. And you can be sure that you are a son or a daughter of God, not because of your works, but because Jesus lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death. That means he died for you so that you could have the inheritance that he deserved. Today, you can be made right with God. Don't leave here without getting right with God. It ain't about yesterday. It's about what you do this morning. So the altars are open for that now as we speak. Secondly, we felt as we prayed this morning that there are some who are dealing with warfare, maybe spiritual warfare, depression, anxiety, those kind of things. The word um, particularly was you may be struggling with brokenheartedness. We want to ask you to come and receive ministry. We believe the Spirit is here to meet with you. He's going to fill you afresh. There was a word about headaches. If you're struggling with headaches, and as always, if you're struggling with any sickness, the altars are officially open to you. And we're going to close by just worshiping for a minute. I want to ask you to come. Don't leave here this morning without receiving ministry. It's not a thing to be embarrassed about. Love you, Jesus. Make darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. You silence Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. We ask you to amend the broken heart this morning. Oh, Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness trembles, Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. Christian life. We want to carry our crosses. We want to honor you. And we just commit ourselves afresh, Lord. All uh, that we do is for your glory. It's for your praise, your adoration. You alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Everybody say amen.
Man, well, this morning, uh, you are officially dismissed, but we just want you to know how much we love you. The worship team will hang out for a bit, and the altars will stay open. Um, don't leave if you have anything you're struggling with, we can pray with you about. Wednesday night, y'all be here. It'll be a good time. Beautiful.